This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Our scripture this morning is found in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 28, which can be found on page 1006 in the Black Pew Bibles. Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 28. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people." By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed unto the time of Reformation." But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serving the living God? Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance— since a death had occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effort only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood." For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, 
This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with the sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Good morning. All right, let me pray for us. Jesus, we want to see you this morning. We want to see you more clearly, (laughs) which I didn't even plan this, but saying those words is like ironic after hearing that long passage with so many things we don't know how to reference. But God, we, we want to see you through your word this morning. Everything in this passage is just screaming to us the holiness and the majesty of God. It's just holding up the, the beauty of God to us, the magnificence of your character and your, um, your purity. And it's also screaming to us, uh, you can't come in like that. It's, it's rightly orienting us and sizing us and showing us the majesty of, of our God. So Jesus, I pray that you would Spirit living God, open our eyes this morning to see Jesus um, as our, our way in, as um, our only hope to be close to you. God, would you enlighten our eyes, open our eyes, um, give us a hunger for um, what you've done in this passage that um, enables us to grab hold of you, to embrace you, to be close to you. I pray this morning, amen. All right. So, hey, my name is Ricky. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to be with you guys this morning. So we're walking through a series where we are taking different aspects of the person of Jesus, and each week we're looking at them. We're uh, the kind of church that wants to see Jesus as he uh, says he is in Scripture. So each week we're taking different topics of Jesus, and we're wanting to deeply understand them so that we can rightly see Jesus and orient our lives toward him, so we can worship him, so we can stand in awe of him, and that that would change us. So now today, uh, we come to uh, the reality that Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is the sacrifice of God. Now, 
Many of us come to this text or hearing this text read this morning. Um, my hunch is that uh, this semi-complicated, uh, foreign for sure, perhaps weird passage kind of puts all of us in this spot where um, perhaps like you, you don't, you're not really high on the enthusiasm level of like hearing this text and going, okay, let's, let's dig deep. Even having read this entire chapter, right? Like what effect does that have on us? And the reason for this is because of the fact that the Old Testament largely is kind of unfamiliar to many Christians, to many of you in this room. So when the writer of Hebrews does this here in this text where he's making reference to all of these certain events and procedures and all these different elements of worship and the sacrificial system, many of us don't really have like categories to put those in. We don't have a frame of reference by which we can connect those things to our mind and to our hearts. But I think there's another reason that some of us maybe are like a little dialed down on the enthusiasm level when we hear this sermon today, or even the idea of us walking into a sermon on Jesus being the sacrifice. While the reality of Jesus being fully God or fully man or at the center or self-emptying or all these other things that we've looked at over the several weeks, uh, they kind of like stretch our imaginations, right? They, they, like, they help us see like the, the wondrous truths of Jesus in ways that maybe we just haven't like camped out on in a while or before. And they like stretch your categories for him in ways that um, are really beautiful. But when you come to this sermon on who Jesus is as the sacrifice, I think there's this temptation in many of us to kind of go like, I got it. Like, I, I, I know that one. Like, I, I get this one, right? Like, Jesus is my sacrifice. Like, we lack enthusiasm for a text like this because we cover it every single week here, right? Like, we want all of our sermons to be uh, talking about Jesus as our sacrifice. We sing about him being our sacrifice in our songs. It comes up in our liturgies. Even every week, uh, we talk about it before we take communion. Each and every week, we talk about Jesus being our sac sacrifice. And we have such familiarity with the New Testament as Jesus as our sacrifice that we can be tempted to respond by telling ourselves, I got that. Like, I, I know that one already. Like Jesus died for my sins so I could be right with God. He lived this perfect life, died this shameful death so that I could have relationship with God. Like, am I missing anything? Like, that's it. Like, I, I got it, right? Uh, now, what, is, what on earth are we doing? Like, I don't need to go back and look at all the things with the tents and the altars, and the animal sacrifices and the washings and the blood and the ceremonial uh, defilements and all these different things. Now, there might be a lesson in there to draw from, like an eternal truth that might be helpful to put in my pocket and as I go forward. But I already know the answer at the end of the math book. So like, why are we, like, why are we spending our time going through this chapter now, you might not actually say that, right? Like, that may not be something you actually say. Like, you may not actually say, now, man, we've advanced past this, these archaic people doing these things to relate to God. That's not how we relate to God anymore. Why do we need to learn about this? You may not actually voice that, but your lack of enthusiasm for reading the Old Testament maybe generally probably tells something about you, right? It at least says you have a lower view of that. So you're sitting here this morning saying, so what? Haven't we moved past this? And it's remarkable how when we spend an evening isolated in front of like a computer, like you're addicted to work or you're addicted to pornography or you're addicted to video games or YouTube or Instagram or name your issue, 
that you pursue, that you fill yourself with, it isn't the technology or our advancement as humanity or even you understanding how all of this works. The issue is, at the end of all of that, how can I come to God when I, when I feel so dirty? Like, we're not past where they were. How do you come to God when you feel the way you feel? How can you come to your wife and your children with transparent love when your conscience is so defiled? See, the basic problem of life never changes. The circumstances change for sure, but the basic problems don't change. We're humans and we have a conscience that witnesses to our sinfulness and with testimonies of real guilt that we carry that need to be made clean again and again and again and again. And you, you know, you can, you can have an answer for this, right? You can try to pick things up and try to clean things up and make commitments and try to do all these things to try to cover that, but you still feel it and you carry it. And you can say the answer, but God has given us the Old Testament sacrifices as a gift of understanding our need for Jesus as our sacrifice. The sacrifices in the Old Testament are this giant sign that reminds us that what keeps us away from God is not our dirty hands or our soiled clothes or like a distance from the altar or a piece. It's not on the outside of us that needs to be clean. What keeps us from God is real sin echoing in our consciences. They experience this, you experience this. Our insides need cleaned. So my aim this morning, what I want us to see this morning is I want us to look at their situation. Uh, the writer of Hebrews calls this the present time. And he's talking about that current system that's going on in their day of how they're trying to relate to God. And he's, I want us to look at that system. I think it sheds light for how we need Jesus being our true sacrifice, Okay. So we're going to look at three ways that the Old Testament sacrifices failed to clean our consciences. And then we'll see four corresponding ways of Jesus's sacrifice and how that meets our needs, okay? So let's look at three ways that the Old Testament um, system offered uh, a way to be close to God, but failed. So first, uh, we'll see it had a, like an extremely limited uh, access to God. Number two, we'll see external cleansing. And number three, it limited forgiveness. So limited access, external cleansing, and limited forgiveness. Let's walk through each of those at a, at a clip. The first one is extremely limited access to God. When you read about the tabernacle and the priests and the sacrifices and the whole elaborate system in the Old Testament, you need to read it as a gift from God. This is God's gift to humanity so that they could relate to him. So that sinful humanity could have a way in this period to actually have relationship with him. Now, to be sure, the tabernacle was this great thing that served a purpose. However, the, the message it sent the message that this whole system sent to us was a mixed one at best. At one hand, there was this message that you could come to this tent and receive mercy and grace and forgiveness from the living God. That's all good stuff. But at the same time, the means by which these realities were communicated was this symbol of God's presence. Okay, now think back to Ron's sermon last week. Ron talked about uh, God creating 
Eden, the Garden of Eden as this temple garden where he placed man and woman and where God's presence actually came down to commune with them, right? Now, because of their sin, God had to remove them from the garden, away from his presence, and he put cherubim angels to guard the entrance so that they could not come into the presence of God, right? That's their plot. That's the scenario for a lot of uh, Genesis, right? And then God institutes the tabernacle. This is God's grace to humanity so that they could once again interact with him and have relationship with him. They could have a place to go to actually pursue the presence of God. And this tabernacle, though, was no, like no ordinary man and woman could ever enter it, though. They were still guarded and kept out of the rooms, which contained these amazing artifacts and reminders of God's greatness that they could never lay eyes on, with an interior chamber that only a handful of priests could ever access and one particular chamber that only one priest could ever go to only one time a year. You have to relate to God through regulations and weird, strange rituals because you can't go in. They even had a curtain outside of the tabernacle with uh, the cherubim pictures with gardens on the curtains to even remind you that your sin is what kicked you out. You cannot come into the presence of God. And all of this was to remind them of their separation. There's also the external cleansing. Because of their ongoing sin, they didn't have close fellowship with God, but God in his mercy provided a way for their ongoing need and desire to be close to him by giving them the temple and the rituals. So we could look at, there's so much here. We could look at all the rituals that he gave them, the burnt offering, the cereal offering, the peace offering, sin and guilt offerings, and over and over and day by day, these sacrifices were given to God, some in worship and some because of their sin, because of the distance that they had with God in order to have relationship with him. And as uh, the writer of Hebrews puts it in verses nine and 10 of uh, chapter nine, The gifts and sacrifices offered in the tabernacle are only good at a surface level. They only deal with matters of food and drink and with various washings, which had to do with like this ritual purification to come into God's presence and certain regulations for the body. In other words, the Old Testament system only dealt with the outside of you. It only dealt with these uh, external realities, not internal realities, such as the conscience. God didn't want his people to forget that their conscience needed cleansed of sin and that they were separated from God. And he wanted them to have this regular reminder, these rhythms of coming and offering sacrifices that kept in front of their faces of their true situation, this cosmic separation from God, this separation from them and God. This was the reality relating to God by repetitively having them come to the tabernacle to make appeasement for their sin. That was their reality. Number three, all of this means they only received a limited forgiveness. They were only given limited forgiveness, okay? Because people continued to sin, because sin was habitual and on repeat, the offerings were then on repeat, like they never ended. They went on and on and on, right? This never ended because the blood of animals can't take away sins of humanity. It, it was this way they went over and over and over, and all of this was meant to just be a holdover. It was a detour for them. This was meant to be something that they did over and over, but it never actually solved the problem. Why? Because the sacrifices only went so deep. No matter how... Um, 
affectious the sacrifices were, no matter how devotely the temple requirements were kept, no matter how sincere the high priest was when he offered the sacrifices and did his duties, especially on the day of atonement, the reality is, is once you walked out of the temple, once you've offered your sacrifice, you had to pull out your phone and schedule another day to come back. You had to schedule and put it back on the calendar because it only lasted so long. Your sacrifice had a time limit on it. It ran out. And there you have it, extremely limited access to God, external cleansing, and limited forgiveness. The old period with the sacrificial system only pointed to the problem. It highlighted the problem. It underlined the problem, but it didn't solve the problem. So what was the point? So every single day, I drive down Main Street to come to work, and I cannot wait for Main Street to be. One day, Main Street will be completely finished. Um, there's piles of dirt, there's bumps, there's uh, potholes that they seem very unconcerned at fixing at the present time. There's rerouting, there's all these sorts of things. And, um, and, and there's, there's uh, you know, they're, they're digging holes to replace the pipes. They're uh, digging trenches to put the, the rails for the streetcar in, right? They're repairing all this different stuff. They're taking down the light poles so at night half the street isn't lit up. All these sorts of things are happening. And almost every morning I drive to work and somebody has dragged a cone in front of the only good lane and you got to park your car and get out and move the cone over because somebody's trying to be funny um, or annoying. All those things are happening. And um, man, I cannot wait until it's done. We'll have essentially six lanes of traffic on Main Street, a streetcar running on two of them. It's supposed to make uh, travel up and down through Midtown a lot more efficient, free access to travel for pedestrians, all these sorts of things. It's supposed to make things a lot smoother. I mean, that's the theory at least, right? Like, I don't know. But that's the theory. And I can't wait for that day. Now, until then, I've been like toying with the idea of like rerouting going down Gillum or Broadway, but I'm only going seven blocks, so it just seems too far out of the way. I know, like midtown issues, but seven blocks, so I just drive Main Street every day. Like, it, it works. It gets me where I need to go. It's fine. If you ask me how it was going, I'd say it's fine. Main Street's fine. What they have going on right now gets me where I need to be. But I can't wait till it's done. That's what's going on here. Like, what we have now isn't perfect. That's what he's saying here. What you had was not perfect. The Old Testament system for all its grandeur, pageantry, in spite of the good and necessary role it played in God's promises was only designed to go so far. It wasn't meant to be the way it was forever. It was only good to that point and no more. It was necessary to pave the way, but it was only that. Like it functioned like this temporary road functions with all of its bumps and burnt, uh, dirt and all these different things. It's useful, but it leaves a lot to be desired, a lot of frustration to be desired. It's actually meant in many ways to throw you off balance. It's in many ways meant to annoy you in the right places. It's meant to frustrate you in the right ways. God's presence was sealed off behind the outer tent. The priest could only go in there once a year. Only the high priest could go in and he had to take the animal's blood with him. It's only intended to hold us over until verse 10. 
Put your eyes on verse 10. Now, the author of Hebrews is contrasting everything I've just unpacked for you and just skated over, really. He says, this is the present time. And then in verse 10, he says, until the Reformation. Now, Reformation here means like fulfillment, completion. Until the road is finished, until it's completed. The old system is helpful, unsettling, dissatisfying, until it's completed. Now let's read verses 11 through 14 and watch the difference between the old period and the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, it's like this, like, finally Christ came. He came as the true high priest. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, speaking of his body, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, like we know what those do, they're not good enough, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, notice the external, how much more? Like that, that worked for a time, but how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifying our conscience finally, from dead works to serve the living God. See, Jesus is the sacrifice that fulfills and completes all the shortcomings of the Old Testament sacrifices. Let's look at four of the most important ways that he, that he fulfills our needs with his own death. Let's see the four uh, most potent ways that Jesus' sacrifice meets our needs. Jesus' sacrifice, I'm gonna give you all four of them right now, provides our substitution, he is our propitiation. He brings reconciliation and secures eternal redemption. Jesus' sacrifice provides our substitution. He's our propitiation. He brings reconciliation and secures eternal redemption. Let's walk through all four of those. By the way, this could be a 10-week series by itself, but here we go. All right. Um, Jesus is our substitution. Jesus died as a substitution for our sins to pay the penalty of our sin. Uh, the penalty of death that we deserve because of our sins. Christ died uh, as a substitutionary sacrifice for us. Okay, what does this mean? What is this getting at? In the old system, the high priest went into the holies of holies once a year, taking the blood of an animal, right? You notice that in verse seven. Every year, uh, the high priest takes into the Holy of Holies the blood of an animal for the sins and even the unintentional sins of the people. Why did he have to do that? Why blood? Well, because of, I'm sure you were reading Leviticus for, this morning for your meditation. Leviticus 17.11. Leviticus 17.11 says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you. No, notice that. Like you should underline that. That's actually a pretty big deal. 
If you're in Leviticus 17, 11, underline, I have given it for you. So the picture here is not like pagans cutting themselves, trying to appease God. This isn't a pagan ritual here. This isn't them trying to assuage God or trying to get God to do what they want by cutting themselves. This is a gift from God. Like for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And then God says, I've given this to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Why blood? Because God is teaching us something. He's giving us something for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So the blood was a symbol of life and the shed blood stood for the death of the animal and the animal's death was in place of the death of the priest and in the place of the people. So this background helps us understand why Jesus had to come as a substitutionary sacrifice. So the substitute animal was killed in recognition that the penalty for death, sin was death. Its blood was sprinkled and the people's lives were spared. It's really bloody in the Old Testament when you're reading through these passages. Their lives are spared by the sprinkling of blood. One life is forfeit. Another life is sacrificed instead. Life is given for life. Life of the victim for the life of the sinner. Our passage today tells us in Hebrews 9, uh, 22, verse 22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. There's no forgiveness without blood. No forgiveness without blood. Animal sacrifices were sufficient for cleansing the flesh for ceremonial uncleanliness. But here's the question. Are the animals, is the blood of animals efficient to clean the conscience? Is it efficient Is it able to clean the conscience? For it to be substitutionary, it had to be equivalent. That's significant. No animal could cleanse that, and they knew that. They knew that. If you're taking notes, write down Isaiah 53 and Psalm 51. Look at those later. They knew their animals didn't cover their sins. They didn't clean their conscience. Why is the blood of Jesus so precious then? You see, Jesus was fully man. He faced temptations to sin, and yet he remained sinless. He, he faced all of the temptations to sin, and yet was faithful to God in the face of all hardship. He was the only human to live who did not know sin, and therefore he was guiltless before God. His heart was pure. This means he didn't have to experience separation from God, meaning he didn't have to die. 1 Peter 1.18 says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold. Then verse 19, check out this. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Why did the sacrificial system instruct us to use animals that were spotless and without blemish? because they were instructing us and teaching us of our need for a perfect and sinless sacrifice. And Jesus's death was not the result of his sin or his guilt like, like so many. His death will come because he chose to. He chose to suffer death so that those who are guilty of death are delivered. He chose death so that you could have life. That is unbelievable. That is remarkable. Why is 
his blood so precious, it's difficult to think of any other way that this could happen. It's precious because you can't come up with another idea. There's no other way it can work. There's no other way for your conscience to be cleansed. There's no other way for your sin to be, um, for you to be delivered from your sin. It had to be his blood and his blood alone. Verse 12, Jesus didn't go into the holies with the blood of animals like the priest did, it says. It says he did it by means of his own blood. He sacrificed and shed his own blood. For what reason? To make propitiation. To make propitiation for our sins. The entire Bible reveals to us that God is utterly holy and perfect. God is pure. God is holy. He is always rightfully uh, doing everything he sets out to do, and he demands all those who relate to him to be in line with that, and all those who don't deserve his wrath against he has wrath against all sin and evil. God's wrath is the reverse side of his holiness. God can't set aside his wrath and remain righteous. God can't set aside his wrath and remain holy and good and perfect. This means he must deal with your sin, all of it. He has to deal with your sin. This is where the propitiating love of God comes in. Look at verse 13 in our text. Put your eyes on 13. Jesus, the son of God, was an equivalent sacrifice. Then verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, so animal sacrifices just purified your outsides. Let's keep reading. How much more will the blood of Christ? So he's saying, this is far better. Christ's blood is the answer. And then verse 14, the whole Trinity comes into view. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are involved in this. Through the eternal Spirit, the Holy Spirit, he offered himself, the Son, without blemish to God the Father. Notice that it says Jesus offered himself to God. Jesus offered himself to God. What does this mean that Jesus is our propitiation? The death of Jesus has, has, um, the death of Jesus has to do not only with humans and our sins, but it also has to do, it, it looks upward to God. The death and sacrifice of Jesus was something offered to God the Father. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice to God the Father and thereby averted the wrath of God toward us for our sins. You know, to obtain our salvation for us, God himself met the demands of his holiness in Christ, which because of the oneness of the Trinity kind of means that he met the demands of his holiness. Um, he, he has met those demands in a manner of speaking by propitiating himself to himself. He has done all of it himself. He has taken all of the responsibility. He's bore all the burden and he's done it against himself. Paul speaks of this in Romans 3.24 where he describes believers as 24, justified by his grace as a gift. So God has made you right before God as a gift. It's a gift to be received through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And we'll talk about that here in a second. 
whom God put forward as a propitiation. God came in the person of Jesus to free us from our sins, to remedy his own wrath, to be received by faith. That's your only hope. This was to show God's righteousness so he could stay holy and right and glorious and perfect because of his divine forbearance. He passed over former sins. What's the result of this? Read in for, verse 14 again. Go back to Hebrews 14. Put your eyes back on 14 again. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works? All of this done to clean you from the inside. Jesus's death is a propitiation. So it has the power to clean you from the inside and to purify your conscience before God so that you can be reconciled to God. That's the third one. Jesus's sacrifice reconciles you to God. See, our problem is fundamentally the same. Our conscience condemns us and makes us feel unacceptable to God. And so we create distance between us and God, or he creates distance between us. We are alienated from God. We don't feel good enough to come to him. And no matter how distorted our consciences are, that much is true. You are not good enough to come to God. Like that is, that is absolutely true. Your conscience may prove, like you may, your conscience may move you to do certain like pagan rituals to try to earn something before God. You may try to like pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, try to do more things like giving money to the poor, serving at a soup kitchen, doing a hundred different forms of penance to try to prove something to God and trying to do these things. But it will all circle back and leave you in the same position that you're in right now. You're at distance from God. Now, the thing I want you to see here is that Jesus didn't come to remove your guilt and its effects on your conscience. Jesus, he didn't only come to do that. He also came to reconcile, reconcile you back into fellowship with God, to actually bring you back into relationship with him so you can have access to him. Think about the tabernacle again. And in particular about this curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. The thing about this curtain was not that you couldn't get past it, right? It's, like, it's not like it's an impenetrable force. We're not talking about a brick wall. We're not talking about something too high or anything like that. Like, like what if you just ran past it or just like dove through it or just gently walked around it or through it? That wasn't the point. The point is you don't belong behind it. You can't look back there. You're not clean enough. You're not good enough. You don't belong here is what that's saying. You can't go in or you'll die. You can't go in or God will have wrath on you. Because of the cleansing and the covering that you had by means of the Old Testament system and the sacrifices, and they were just external and temporary, it didn't address the sin in your heart at the deepest level, the level of your conscience. And only Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for that. Only Christ's sacrifice has actually done that. You can't go behind the curtain and look. You can't go behind the curtain to where God is, but verse 11. Look at verse 11. When Christ appeared, verse 12, he went behind the curtain once for all, right? 
Contrast that. The old system, the priest went back there year after year after year after year after year after year to make atonement for sins. And he kept covering them and tried to keep covering them and tried to keep covering them. Jesus did it once for all. This once for allness, if I can put it that way, that, the, that is clearly indicated here is this, like, this place where we stand in relationship to his holiness and his justice and his mercy. It indicates that we stand before those things clean. This once for allness that we have access into the very presence of God through our truer and better high priest Jesus means that we have access. Look at verse 24. Jesus has entered into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He didn't just go into the holies. He went to the presence of God. That's what it's trying to get at. He went to God himself, verse 25, not offering himself repeatedly like the priest did, verse 26. He has appeared once for all, putting away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see that beautiful picture after Jesus's sacrifice of the curtain getting torn in two, right? You're familiar with the story. Jesus says it's finished. And at that moment, they record that the curtain in the holies tore. We have full access to the presence of God through Jesus because he's put our sin away from us for all time. Finally, let's look at redemption. <clears throat> Jesus offers us redemption. Let's look at verse 12. It says that by Jesus's own blood, he has secured an eternal redemption. There's three elements to redemption. Three elements uh, I want us to look at. The first one is that we're in bondage. The idea of redemption gets at the idea that you are captive you are captive. You are, you're a slave. You are in bondage. Jesus says in John eight thirty four, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You are entrapped by your own sin, both by your own decisions to sin and by the fact that you're human and you were born. You are trapped and in bondage to sin. It doesn't matter how hard you try. It doesn't matter what you do. You are trapped by sin. And then also, if that isn't worse enough, 1 John 5, 19 says, the whole world is in the power of the evil one. So that's not only it. You're also enslaved to the evil one. You it says that the evil one walks around the world like a prowling lion looking for whom he may devour. Not only did Jesus die in our place as a substitute, not only did he take the wrath of God as our propitiator, not only does he reconcile us to God so we can have fellowship with him again, he also breaks us from the bondage of these things, from sin and from Satan. We needed someone to provide redemption and thereby like redeem us from this bondage. So that's the second one. Jesus paid the price to free us. When we speak of redemption, you might have like this idea of, um, um, of ransom. If someone captures someone like a child or an important person, their family or the government may pay a ransom to, to get them back, right? They'll pay a ransom in order to like release them from bondage or captivity. And Jesus says, that's exactly what he came to do. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. A price was paid. The sacrifice of the death of Christ was made. Hebrews 2.15 says, to deliver all those who were uh, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. Now, one side note here, that, that, that uh, illustration only goes so far. He purchased us, he paid, but it's not like he paid sin or uh, the Satan to get us back. No, he purchased us and he paid the price to assuage God's guilt. God is the one at the judgment seat. God is the one that Jesus was sent from and actually does this for. Finally, we're free. The third piece of redemption is that we are truly free. If God has set us free, we are free. Let's go back to Jesus' words in John 8, 34. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, right? He says, all of us are in bondage to sin, but he says, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. You are free if the son sets you free. You are free. And then, and that frees us from dead works. Do you see that in verse 14? He cleans you from the inside out, purifies your conscience, and frees you from dead works. So now you're no longer practicing rituals and doing things that only cast judgment on yourself. You're now free to live for him, right? That's why he has set you free. There's this interesting paradox, right? In Colossians 1.13 says, God the Father has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. He didn't set you free so you can go off building your own kingdom, right? He freed you from dead works so that you can actually please him and live in a way in his kingdom that brings you closer to him, that lets you extend his glory, that lets you participate in life with him. You can actually pursue him in his kingdom, not to live for yourself, but to live for him. Paul has this interesting way of saying, we're now free from sin. You know, I was a slave to sin. I couldn't break myself from there. But now through Christ, I'm a slave to Christ. I, I, I don't live under the weight of trying to please God anymore. I'm a slave of his, which means everything I do, everything I want, everything I pursue is to build his kingdom, not mine. And time and time again, I meet with people over and over and they feel like this guilt and this shame they know that Jesus came and lived this perfect life, that he died this death, that they're free by the sacrifice of Jesus and yet they carry shame and guilt and they feel trapped by their sin. But Jesus didn't come uh, to just give us new rituals or methods by which we try to like purify ourselves. He came once for all into the presence of God to clean us, to purify us, so that even when we do sin, even when we do fall back into sin, we don't need to do penance. We don't have to cover it. We don't have to do something more to bump us up. Christ has once for all dealt with it. He's 
He's put it away. He's welcomed us into the presence of God. We, we get full access to God himself by the work of Jesus. So we can repent of that and just trust that his sacrifice actually means something for our life today. So here in a moment, when we take communion, the sins that you've, you know, filled up over this last week, this is not penance to deal with those. This is not a way to absolve them. This, this is one of the reasons why we say, hey, we just bought this bread from Sunfresh. Like this is crappy wine. It's not all that great. This is just a pointer of your true sacrifice. This is just a pointer. It's a reminder that you actually have forgiveness. You actually have, you are, um, that Jesus actually did substitute himself for you, that he actually is your propitiator, that he actually did reconcile to you, you to God, that you actually are his and redeemed if your faith is in him. The symbols here of the bread and of the wine are not the thing. That's why when Jesus institutes this meal, he says, when he takes the bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. He takes this bread and he says, the, the bread isn't the thing. The symbol is, I'm going to break my body for you. That's why we tear the bread each week. We tear the bread each week to remember Jesus' body was actually broken for you. And that's why when Jesus gave his disciples the wine, he wasn't saying the wine is the thing. He said, this is a symbol of my blood that's gonna be poured out for you. That's what he said, right? He said, my blood poured out for yours. The symbol is it's poured out. His life was poured out. His lifeblood for your life. That's our hope. That's, that's, our, that's our cry. That's why Jesus is our sacrifice. And therefore there's no condemnation. And I wanna pray that over us. I wanna pray Romans 8 over us that because of the sacrifice of Jesus, there's no condemnation for us. Let me pray that for us and then we'll take communion. Would you stand with me? Jesus, because of your finished work, because of your finished work, because you came and lived a perfect life, because you died a shameful, self-sacrificing life, death, that you poured out your blood for us. You shed your blood for us. Your life was poured out. You, you did that so that we could be cleaned inside, so our consciences could be pure before you. So God, there is no, you tell us, there's no condemnation for those that are in you. There's no guilt, there's no shame, there's no condemnation that the Father can bring against us if our faith is in what you've done. I wanna read this for us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. 
He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So if that's your cry this this morning, if you know that you can't please God on your own, you know there's nothing you can do to cleanse your conscience. You've tried, you've doubled down, you've tried to do things to please God. You know that can't happen. If your faith is in Jesus, that he once for all has cleansed you by his own blood, by his sacrifice, and you put your faith in that, you're not just admitting that that is true. You're saying, that's my only hope. I can't make appeasement on my own. I can't do something else. There's no other sacrifice that can be made. And therefore I put my hope in him. I'm a slave to Christ. In other words, I submit my life to him. I put all my chips in with Jesus. If that's you this morning, then you're a Christian and we invite you to come and take communion. Those serving can go ahead and come forward. The way we take communion is we tear a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup. The glass is juice and the stoneware is wine. You know, it's interesting, uh, Paul tells us uh, that if you take this meal uh, with sin in your heart, you actually bring condemnation on yourself. And what he's getting that there is the meal won't make you clean. (laughs) If you come and take the meal with sin in your heart, meaning if you come and you're not a believer in Christ, if you haven't put everything in him, then this meal only condemns you. This meal only tells you you're not okay. It's much like that Old Testament sacrifice in that sense. But if you put your faith in Jesus, it's a beautiful reality to take this and to say, this is my only hope, that he is my only way. And therefore take a moment before you come. We're not in a rush this morning. We do it this way so that you can have some time at your seat to actually assess whether you're following Jesus. We invite you that if you want to follow Jesus, come to one of us up here. We have uh, prayer ministers throughout the church. We'd love to share with you how you can put your trust in him and put your faith in Jesus. Also, if you're standing there and you're struggling with some sin, if you're if taking a moment to assess your relationship with Jesus, is there some place where actually you need the blood of Christ to purify your conscience before God? Don't miss an opportunity to confess that to God and to receive his forgiveness there. We would love to pray that over you as well. If you're, um, if you're stuck there, if you're needing prayer, you could ask somebody sitting around you. You could also come and receive that from some of our prayer ministers up here that would love to pray with you for receiving uh, God's grace where you've sinned. Um, but for all those who are coming in and taking communion, you can come at this time.